Hello and welcome. You're listening to Building with People for People, the Unfiltered Build podcast, episode 31, where we talk to people behind the tech, explore their journeys, and make sense of what and how we build through a human lens. I'm your host, Nigel Finley. This episode is brought to you by GetSpace, a real-time qualitative survey and feedback platform for engineers on a mission to improve engineering engagement and happiness. In the age of the great resignation, it is more important than ever to ensure your teams are feeling engaged. In fact, a recent Gallup poll highlighted that highly engaged teams outperformed their less engaged counterparts by a significant 14 to 18% in productivity. This is why we are building GetSpace, to give you an affordable solution and the power to increase engagement, happiness, and productivity within your engineering org. GetSpace easily collects feedback around dev tools, processes, engineering happiness, and more via a single question on pull requests, eliminating the effort, delay, and recency bias on traditional surveys. Sign up now using the code BUILDWITHPEOPLE and get 20% off your first year. Visit getspace.dev, that's getspace.dev, to learn more and launch your survey game into Hyperdrive. Our work could be more fun if, my engineers could be happier if, if we just remove this blocker, is this the right problem to solve? Software development is all about solving hard problems in fun and creative ways, also known as building awesome shit. And asking these questions in the work we do allows us to think more creatively. Our guest loves to ask these types of questions and solve them with our high-performing teams. Today, we dig into how we can make sure we're asking the right questions to ensure we are solving the right problems, learning from failure, how to build high-performing teams, how we can think about metrics as feedback loops, and more. Our guest today was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and has four kids. She received her BS in mathematics from Carnegie Mellon and has recently completed her executive MBA from the University of Michigan. During undergrad, she had no intentions of getting into tech, but during an internship, she fell in love with programming. With over 15 years of experience now under her belt, our guest is a technology leader with experience in scaling high-performing engineering teams and building platforms across various industries. She's worked at Highland as AVP of Cloud Engineering, at Firebolt Analytics as Head of Cloud Engineering, and currently is the VP of Engineering of System Initiative, where she leads a team of talented engineers creating a new collaborative power tool designed to remove the paper cuts from DevOps work. When our guest is not eliminating paper cuts from DevOps, she is spending time with her family, building DIY projects with her kids, or working outside in her garden. Her passion is building amazing things with amazing people. So it was only fitting she'd join us on the show today. Britt Myers, welcome to the show. Hey, Nigel. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get going, before we dive into all the meat and potatoes, I like to ask my guests four questions. It's a lightning round called Building Bits and Bites. Are you ready? I'm ready. Why do you build software? Because it's fun. (laughs) It's just so fun and so satisfying uh, to be creative and then at the end, you have something. You have something that you've built, you know, with a team or with others, but I just, it's just fun. Who's your cheerleader or your support system? Oh, definitely my husband, uh, far out in front of the pack and, uh, you know, with, with a gaggle of children and, uh, you know, uh, a very busy life. My family is there every step of the way as well. What about the best advice that you have ever received? Growing up, uh, my grandfather used to talk to me about sort of the power dynamics in people in your life. And the example he would always use was a professor that he had that he just like vehemently disagreed with. 
couldn't figure out what to do and was arguing with him. And he said, look, in your life, you're going to come across people who you disagree with. And it doesn't matter that they're wrong. They're in control. Figure out what they want and figure out how to give it to them. And if you do that, the rest will take care of itself. Uh, and I have been, I have been living by some form of that advice pretty much my whole life, whether it's you know, a boss or you know, customer service at insert thing here that's having a problem, <laughs> uh, figure out what they want, figure out what's important to them and give it to them. And yeah, that has been, that has had a, a huge impact on me. Any tech or any tools that you're using to help solve everyday problems? You know, this is really embarrassing because I think my answer is no, um, at least not interesting ones. Uh, I feel like most of most of my everyday problems are small human problems or <laughs> like very tactical things. Uh, and so, you know, all my kids are quite young, so we haven't quite gotten into the, well, how do we automate our way through some of these? But I think in the future, we'll, we'll head there. Literally small human problems. Literally right? small human yeah. problems. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, not finding the favorite dress that you only wear or, <laughs> you know. Right, right. So let's start with sort of where you began, right? You were studying math in college and you found your way into programming. Take, take us through your journey. So I think the funny thing is, is that I didn't, I did not even really intend on being a math major, or at least being a math major was my plan B. So uh, I had applied to undergrad to be a civil engineer. Hmm. I knew I liked engineering. And because I knew I liked math and science growing up, and engineering was a discipline that sort of falls in line with, you know, STEM, right? Only I didn't really know about how many types of engineering there were, hmm. or what the options were. Uh, my grandfather, who I referenced earlier, was a civil engineer, and we had a lot, a lot in common. And so I applied to be, you know, sort of following his footsteps. Uh, but I did not get in, so I did not get into the engineering school. And I played, I played basketball in college. And so, you know, college was both a, it was an investment in my future as well as it was an opportunity to continue playing a sport that I loved. And so I was striking this balance of I want to. I need a degree that will land me a job when I graduate, but I want to play basketball. <laughs> and so, you know, my essay, like my uh, application essay that I wrote, something along the lines of me loving engineering and wanting to be an engineering and wanting to be an engineer. And then I think the second to last paragraph was like, oh, and by the way, if engineering doesn't work out, the real reason I love it was math. And so I did not get into the engineering school, but I did get into the science school. Um, and, you know, and so, and so then I was in math and the question was, well, what actually am I going to do? And mm. I immediately freshman year was exploring, you know, I can be an actuary. Um, Carnegie Mellon has a phenomenal computational finance program. I thought maybe I can go the quant route and, you know, follow sort of the wall street path. Um, I looked at operations research and actuary. So I was like very looking for like, what is the application for, you know, uh, for what I can use these skills for. And it was just complete happenstance that I was looking for internships. Um, one of the alumni basketball players who was also an assistant coach at the time was working at a defense company and had a software engineering internship hmm. opening yeah. and hooked me up and, you know, gave me an opportunity to interview. Um, it was, you know, I was a, I think I was a sophomore at the time. It was the first time that I had traveled and not paid for it myself. It was like a very strange feeling. I didn't know how to like, it's like, okay, so I'm going to spend it at the time, you know, I'm a poor college student, 
$300 for a flight to Boston at the time was like really like, that was a lot of money. You know, I'm like, you're sure you're going to pay me back for this. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and it was, it was just sort of, you know, it was the perfect opportunity because I could sort of try it before I bought it. And I had done a lot of that, you know, I had shadowed civil engineers and different types of engineering, construction engineers. And I was just looking to get exposed to, okay, like I know that what I'm learning in college is not actually how the job is going to feel. And so I really sought after mm -hmm. exposure to, well, what does the job feel like? And the, re the sort of emotional reaction I had showing up at that interview, hearing about what they do and how they solve problems and what I would be exposed to, it was just a light bulb click in a way that I had never felt in any of the other sort of disciplines that I had shadowed or tried to get exposure to. And so I, you know, as much as I could reoriented the rest of my college degree around how can I prove to somebody that I'm willing, worthy of an entry level engineering, you know, software engineering job, because I was not changing my major. I was in fact, uh, after, after that internship was when I had really set my sights on graduating early. So my mom works at a community college, which allowed me to take like, you know, very, uh, the family discount of gen <laughs> eds, you know, psych 101 and those types of things. Um, and so that was the sort of last, the last thing I needed to be able to say, okay, my, I'm going to graduate a year early. This is the career that I want, you know, and it felt so clear. Um, and yeah, so it just became this, you know, I'm going to stick with math. I'm going to take as many CS classes as I can within the time frame that I needed. And I just continued to sought after exposure and, you know, internships and what have you sort of for the rest of my college. Okay. So you graduate college and you end up sort of in, I mean, lots of things happen. This is obviously oversimplifying it, but you end up in the DevOps space. Sort of, sort of. So I graduate college and I'm just an application developer. Okay. We were working on a desktop application for a single tenant on-premise app. It was, <laughs> the, the product was incredibly fascinating and it was a perfect flip place for me to learn because the team was incredibly small. There were brilliant engineers. So I just got a ton of coaching, a ton of feedback and just sort of like strategically where the product sat for the company, it was a huge moneymaker. So there wasn't a lot of like business pressure coming in, which was amazing. Um, and it had uh, sort of a relationship with many other parts of the product, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like an integration tool. And so, so that gave me just broad exposure, um, to lots of parts of the company in a way that I might not have gotten if I worked someplace else. So, you know, so much of, so much of what has happened in my career is a combination of like being in the right place at the right time. And so like, hap like having to have applied to that company and having, you know, I was one of probably 30 engineers that year that they had hired, you know, oh, yeah. um, 25, 30, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, I was the one that was, I was the only one that was on this particular team. Hmm. Um, and because, because the product was so stable, because it was such a moneymaker for the team and it really didn't need, I mean, I, there were three of us, there were three software engineers working on it and a couple of testers. Um, but what that exposed us to or what they, it gave us the opportunity to act as sort of a, you know, a spike team f for the company in a lot of ways, because mm. we were, you know, the opportunity cost of us not working on that product was quite low because we didn't have to do too, too much to it to stay competitive. So, uh, so I had gotten involved in lots of different prototypes, you know, building, um, 
you know, a Windows phone app and researching new protocols and new integration layers. And one of the projects that I got to participate in was what became the company's first cloud first application. So mm. as opposed to a single tenant on premise, mm -hmm. this was multi-tenant, mm -hmm. it was cloud only, there was no on-prem story. And that was really what thrust me sort of into DevOps. Um, and my, you know, I entered into the leadership track around that time. And so I like pretty quickly went from how do we build this to like, okay, how am I blocking and tackling for the team and what's mm. in front of us, you know? And it was just the right set of environments and the right mix of people where we just really wanted to solve these problems. We really wanted to learn the cloud and learn what works and learn what doesn't. And that, so that was sort of my, my first foray into the DevOps space was hmm. starting there, just trying to build a cloud application and deliver it as a cloud person, you know, or as a software engineer. Amazing. Amazing. So you talk about how you kind of move into a leadership track and, you know, now you've been leading teams for 10 plus years. And so I kind of want to ask some questions around that because I think as software engineers, right, we, all we want to do is we want to, we really just want to build things, build amazing things. But a lot of being able to do that is how well our leadership can do, like you said, unblocking and then tackling those problems for the team, right? So as a leader, I kind of want to talk about, you have this piece, you have this uh, readme, the Brit Myers readme on your GitHub. It's called uh, sort of a how I work, how I lead and what I value sheet. I'm curious, what was sort of the inspiration for that? I love it, by the way. I'm just curious oh, sort of thank you. where that thank came you, from. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I am not the first one to do sort of a manager readme and I'm not, and I'm, I apologize, I'm not entirely sure sort of who started it or where that came from. But, you know, if I think about the advice that has been most impactful, figure out what somebody wants and figure out how to give it to them. So much of, so much of what's important, I think, about being a great leader is that your teams know what to expect from you, that you're reliable, um, and that, that there's no surprises. And, and so I, I wrote, I've, I've had some flavor of that for quite some time. It has not been on my GitHub forever. Part of the reason why I put it there is I was starting to interview a lot. Mm. And if you're interviewing for leadership positions, what am I getting? What, how do they work? What is, this, what is their style? Because I certainly have a leadership style. My leadership style is not compatible with every leader everywhere or every company culture ever everywhere. And so I saw that as a mechanism that I can share a bit more about myself, both from the perspective of what it's like to manage me. Like if you're, if you're considering me joining a leadership team, then, you know, you can read that sort of from the perspective of a peer or a boss or a superior or something. But it's also true that like if I'm going to join a team, that the team themselves know what they're getting from me. Mm -hmm. And so it was also an opportunity for me to just sort of throw it out there to as an attempt to like decrease the anxiety of, oh my gosh, I have this new boss. And like, is she crazy? I don't know. You know, like what is she, what is she gonna do? What does she expect? How does she work? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just gives an opportunity to get what otherwise can take a long time to naturally sort of learn about each other. I basically was wanting to accelerate that process and give somebody something to work with to start. So it wasn't, it wasn't quite so exploratory and unknown. And, you know, it's funny, even 
uh, whether I'm interviewing people or, you know, if I'm being interviewed or, you know, working with somebody, the document actually comes up quite a bit. And, uh, and I get great feedback on it, both from the, you know, I, I get curious, you know, in the past sort of how many jobs have I applied to that that document was the reason I didn't get the call back. Mm. And I would say that that is the exact right purpose. Like that is the exact reason for the document is if somebody reads that and says, no, I don't want to work with Brit at all. Like, yes, please, let's not waste our time, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what's really amazing about that too, I think is one thing about being a really strong leader is your ability to communicate and also a level of transparency that's important at that level. And I think this document conveys both, right? Yeah, thank you, yes. You're communicating without without, you know, verbally, right. You're saying, Hey, this is, this is who I am. And then you're being transparent about this is also who I am. And this is, there's no gray areas. This is what it is. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, with part of having it in GitHub, I sent it to a bunch of people that I've worked with and that I've managed. And I sort of, you know, I blasted it on my LinkedIn, right. It's like, if I've, if I have managed you and you read this and you read a sentence and you say, no way, that's not Brit. Like, please tell me mm. because, you know, one thing I saw with sort of the manager readmes was, I don't want it to just be the sunshine and roses necessarily. I wanted feedback that like, is it actually accurate? And, you know, a couple of people forked it and gave me PRs and added stuff. And so that was, that part was awesome too, mm. to get the, you know, it's not, I, I wanted it to not just be from my perspective per se. Definitely. A part of this feels like you're already sort of allowing your team sort of in the use case of, you know, when you come into a new team, you're allowing your team to understand who you are and, thereby really maybe speeding up the process for them to be able to trust you? Yes, 100%. 100%. So with that and kind of empowering your teams, you actually you actually mentioned, you say, as a leader, I believe my job is to build amazing teams and empower them to use their skills and knowledge to have a positive impact. How do you kind of go about fostering that culture of empowerment? Yeah, I I think I do it a couple of ways. Number one, one thing I believe to be true for a team to truly feel empowered is that they need the exposure to making decisions on their own. Mm. And one way that I can help with this is that there are, you know, whether it's a technical decision, an architectural decision, you know, uh, debating something, what have you, I will just choose when not to show up to those types of conversations. Not because I don't want to be there, not because I don't have an opinion in what happens, but because that's a way for me to say, look, I trust you. Hmm. I trust you. You know what's best. You can make this call. Now, I can say that and show up, but especially in the beginnings of a relationship, like, you know, it's it can be very hard to believe that what's well, like, oh, my boss is in the room, you know, like, what are they going to say? What are they thinking? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I will just not show up and I will follow up later and I'll, you know, I, and I, and I will sort of use those as, um, whether it's like coaching opportunities or what have you to sort of like, you know, it gives, it gives me an opportunity when I connect with whoever the individuals were in that room to ask not only about the conversation, but also like, how did you approach, how did you approach the conversation itself? Like, were there conflict? Did people disagree? How did you navigate that? And like, as much as, as much as those interactions can be authentic and, moving in the right direction when I'm not there, mm. that is that is just so important because the more decisions I can have being made in rooms I'm not in, the better off that we're going to be. And so I just model this by not showing up. Uh, another way is I like explicitly delegate as much as I can. You know, mm. I've told people, 
my goal is, and this is sort of more in uh, when I was career climbing, ladder climbing a bit more. It's like my goal is to get promoted and then delegate my whole job because now I have more space and capacity to do the next, to think higher level, right? And, uh, and so I would just sort of continually try to bring up as many people as I can. Mm. Now, you know, when you're sort of a frontline manager, this could be a little bit tougher because, you know, you end up with HR issues potentially, or, you know, like there's only, there's only so much you can really do, but particularly when you're in that sort of manager of managers or, you know, a coach of coaches, I have a tremendous ability to delegate, <laughs> to delegate the things that otherwise I would be doing, um, bringing people into conversation, sharing sort of what I'm thinking and what the impact, what the trade-offs are and th like how to think strategically, and so I just will delegate as much as I can. And then over time, kind of similar to that example with the team, you know, I consider my management teams, teams themselves, and I can mm. do the same thing. Hey, you managers, like this is a problem you have amongst your groups. You figure it out. And I have some ideas. I'm happy to come help, but mm. you don't actually need me here. Like the group of you can figure out what to do and how to do. And I just will give them the space to do that with the support needed if what they're doing is struggling. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So other instances where you might have really strong opinions on something, maybe it's an architecture decision or it's something you know because of your experience, you've had previous things that have failed. And so you really want to make sure that something happens in a certain way just because you know previous experiences has told you that this is the right way. How do you sort of ensure that your vision is is seen? also challenged, right? But mm -hmm. in a way that gives gives your team space to think about it and then also space to act. Because I think sometimes we've seen where leaders want things to go a certain way. Maybe it's not communicated and the team doesn't do that way. Then the, then the leader has to come in and micromanage and then you sort of start to erode that trust. How do you sort of keep that trust there in those types of situations? I think it's incredibly important to, you know, there's, there's, there's the pressure I feel personally, which is I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Mm -hmm. Like I individually don't want to make the same mistake twice. I want to learn. I want to apply what I've learned in situations going forward because who wants to make the same mistake twice, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think something that has helped me navigate these types of situations is understanding that part of why I know part of why I have this feeling that this is wrong or, you know, whatever sort of the situation is, I only have that feeling because I messed it up in the first place. Interesting. You know, I failed first, right? I, I already mm. made the mistake or, you know, the woulda, shoulda, coulda. It's like, whatever that situation is, it happened for me. And that has had an impact on me. And so situationally, how bad actually is it if that team just relearns the same lesson I've already learned? Hmm. And, Reinforce that. Yeah. To reinforce and, that and, learning. You know, and it sort of becomes if the cost of getting it wrong is not that high, if, hey, if, if I, you know, arguably will be able to say, listen, I told you so, I'm not going to <laughs> because nobody likes hearing yeah, that. Yeah. And also, this now is an experience that you have, and I could still be wrong. Like, it might be something that I've learned. It might be an instinct that I have that this isn't going to work. But I think. You know, so much more lately than ever really in my career am I finding parallels to basketball in, <laughs> in my work life. And this is one of those examples, right? Because on paper, you can say, look, we've played this team before. This is the defense, this is the defense they ran, and this is the offense that didn't work. Mm. But 
you're playing them again. Like it is in fact a new game. Some situations might be the same. The team might be the same. Maybe they're even running the same defense, but it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean that the play is going to fail that time. Then that next time it might work because so much has actually changed. And so I try to, you know, not think too highly of myself and my past experiences, or at least look at that with curiosity Hmm. and say, yeah, but it actually is different. And this is why, you know, it's a different team. It's a different tech stack. It's a different business domain. It's, you know, whatever the situation is. Uh, and so the combination of being able to look at myself critically and say, I know this feels the same, but it is actually different combined with what's the worst that can happen. Hmm. If the worst that can happen is we make the same mistake again and we got to work a little harder for a couple of weeks because we got it wrong and we need to get it right. Okay. <laughs> like, okay, we'll do that. You know, now, obviously if the answer to that second question is like, no, no, if we do this, it's we're over, <laughs> you know, then, okay. We we probably really need you know to talk about it more. Um, and you know, as, as a leader, as a manager, what I can say is I'm accountable to this decision. I know you don't agree with this is the right way to do it. This is how I want us to do it. And I'm accountable if it goes up, goes wrong. Mm. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. going to fall on me. Um, and you know, so that it's both, uh, like that gives me an opportunity to say, Hey, my role here isn't just, um, isn't just to, you know, uh, make it safe for you to fail. It's also for me to take accountability when things do go wrong, explicitly when you're telling me you disagree with what I think should happen, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think a part of that, right, is is this feedback loop and understanding or really learning from things that happen if you fail or even just constructive constructive feedback. How do you how do you kind of go about uh, giving feedback so that it is well received or in these cycle periods that you're talking about of like discovery and then building and failure? How do you sort of coach them to sort of reflect appropriately to be able to then learn and grow? Yeah, it starts in the very, very beginning. So mm-hmm. everybody likes to get feedback differently. Mm-hmm. And so this is an area where I think it's very important for leaders to be flexible. You know, not everybody wants to be led the same way, wants to be coached the same way, wants to be managed the same way. Um, and so very early, you know, one of the first questions I ask any new team member is how do you like to receive feedback? Mm-hmm. You know, is it, uh, is the is the random call in the day anxiety inducing because of things that have happened for you at past, you know, at past companies. And so don't just call me out of the blue and say, Hey, do you have a second? I have some feedback for you, you know? And some people are like, no, no, do that, please. I absolutely want that. Mm. You know, some people prefer it in Slack and they prefer it written because, you know, they're, they want time to process it. They don't want to be on the spot. They want to be able to think about it. And so it's up to me. It's my job to learn about them and how they best receive feedback because ultimately I want, them to understand what I'm saying and not just hear me. Hmm. Like I want them to understand it. And so I need to under, I need to learn then what is the best way to communicate with them so that they understand what I'm saying so that they can ask questions. And so that, you know, they don't, uh, you know, one thing particularly that we do at system initiative, like we have incredibly high expectations of our engineers. And so we are giving feedback as often as we can, you know, hmm. in the moment, as often as we can. And, uh, so there's a sort of a, like a cultural side to like, how often does this happen actually? Mm. You know, is it scary? Do you only get feedback 
at annual review cycles? Do you only get feedback when you really, really messed up or when, you know, like some of those things matter. And so it has to just be part of the all of the time conversation. The second thing that I do is I just ask for it all the time also, right? And so even Hmm. as sort of a, you know, like the arguable authority figure for the people that I'm managing, I need feedback from them about how I'm doing, how I'm showing up for them, how I'm showing up for the team. What am I missing? Is there something I should stop doing that's not working? Is there something I should start doing that I'm missing completely? Mm-hmm. You know, I need that feedback and growth too, not just from my mentors and my bosses, but I need it from the people that I'm managing. And so I ask all of the time, you know, I will find particular moments and say, hey, you know, we just we just came out of this conversation. How did you think I blah, 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 you know? And hmm. so it has to be a bit more... I've learned that if you sort of simply ask for feedback broadly, sometimes people can feel on the spot. They don't really know. But when when there's specific moments that you can ask more specific questions about, mm. you know, hey, how did you think I handled that conversation? It's felt like things got tenuous. Did it? You know, like how did you feel we ended? And, you know, and so asking very specific, asking very specific questions to have this just base understanding and the base expectation across the team that we are all here to help each other grow and get better. Right. It is my job in title, but it is all of our jobs to help the team get better all of the time. Yeah. And so it's needs to be bi-directional from sort of manager to individual, but it also needs to be across peer groups, across the team. Like it just needs to be part of the everyday conversation. One pillar of building great teams is the ability to give and receive feedback in the spirit of learning and growth. And as Britt has mentioned, she gives feedback as often as possible and encourages it across teams and peer groups. Do you want an easy way to gather feedback from your engineers and create a culture of continuous feedback and growth? Now you can with GetSpace. GetSpace is a real-time microsurvey platform purpose-built to gather feedback on engineering health and provide data trending over time. With our new pre-built question collections that use research-backed questions from the brilliant folks at Dora and Gallup, you can start gathering feedback in areas like culture, documentation, continuous delivery, and more with just a few clicks. Simply install our app, activate your desired collection, and let the feedback flow. For more information about GetSpace, visit getspace.dev. That's G-E-T-S-P-A-C-E dot D-E-V. Lead by example and ensure your engineers are giving you the feedback you need to ensure their work life is joyful and satisfying. Start collecting feedback today and use the code BUILDWITHPEOPLE at checkout for 20% off your first year. Now, back to the show. So two things I'm hearing there. One is you're sort of leading by example, right? Of like feedback is okay because I'm asking for it and I want you to give it to me. And then also to the way that you're asking for it, because I've kind of found that too, where you, if you just, you ask your, you know, your reports, Hey, you know, how do you, what do you need from me? How am I doing on the spot? They're probably not going to have an answer because it's too broad, but I like that idea of saying after a meeting or when you've completed a feature or whatever that is, they're being very specific so that you can sort of, yeah, I like that a lot. I think it's really good. And, and the other, and the other thing I'll add that it gives me an opportunity to model is how do you receive feedback? Hmm. sometimes people don't know, you know, somebody tells you something and like in your head, the voice in your head is like, what? That's not how that happened. This feedback is ridiculous. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and it certainly happens. And I will get feedback that I disagree with sometimes. And it gives me a chance to also model, like, how do you receive feedback in the moment hmm. when maybe you're feeling uncomfortable? Maybe you disagree with what you heard. Maybe you just 
what you heard didn't feel good. <laughs> you know, like if it's <laughs> like, oh, this is a thing I've actually been working on. And the feedback you're giving me is I've not come as far as I thought, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. regardless of your intention in the moment, that just like doesn't feel good sometimes, <laughs> you know? Totally. Uh, and so, and so I think, you know, part of the benefit of asking for feedback as a manager of your team is that you can model how to receive it. You know, sometimes, yeah. and, and, and I just have sort of like, you know, phrases that I've found that are very helpful that I can go to. And I will teach these to people. Like if you hear something you don't like and you don't want to get defensive, or if your emotional reaction is, man, I need to get defensive here. Here is how I can disarm my own defensiveness hmm. because I don't actually want to show up that way. I never want to be defensive when I'm receiving feedback, right? Like yeah. I asked you for feedback and now I'm going to be defensive, <laughs> which implies that you're on offense, but I just asked you then to be on offense, right? right. So you know, I think I think it's also important that like you can model that and teach and use that to sort of teach that skill to the team. Mm. So as a leader, you've kind of talked about being able to identify and describe the right problems to solve. And I'm curious when we when when that topic comes to mind, like what goes through your head? <laughs> uh, the first thing that goes through my head is something that I tell the team and teams that I've led often, which is I would much prefer the wrong solution to the right problem than the right solution to the wrong problem. And it, that, that phrase sort of puts it in this very binary state, but in fact, like being right and wrong about what problem or what the solution is, like it's not actually that binary. There, mm -hmm. there are just, you know, multiple, like uh, infinitely many shades of gray in terms of what's right or wrong. Um, but what's important though is like what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to share by describing that is it's worth the fight. It's worth the discussion mm. to be very clear about what we're trying to do here. Because often, and this is expected, right? Like we talk a lot about alignment and how to have alignment across the teams and how do you have alignment about what good looks like? How do you have alignment about what the problem even is? And it's just actually impossible to have 100% alignment in those rooms mm. because what I don't want is for every person showing up there to be, what I don't want is for somebody showing up there for them, for me to expect them to have both the, the, the time horizon strategic context in their head all of the time, yeah. because a lot of the work is very tactical. It's very today and tomorrow and the next day. And yes, you're thinking a year out, you're thinking two or three years out, but more in a forecast sense than you are necessarily saying, this is exactly where I want to be in two years. And so mm. I'm working backwards. Usually it's, if I do this, what could happen? <laughs> if I do this, what could happen? And it's just, it's impossible. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's impossible. It's, it's unfair to expect that everybody has all of that type of context in their head. And so when you think about describing the right problem, I think it's just really powerful to like try on some different hats, like try on some different ideas. Like mm. how does this feel if I reframe the problem this way, you know, is it an example of this? Um, yeah. In, in sort of our product, this idea of look, it's multiplayer. And so two people could do something at one time. Do we need to lock, do we need to prevent two people from doing something at one time or is the problem that we're not giving feedback that somebody's already in there? You know, mm. does does exposing more of an interaction solve the problem? Is the problem that we, you know, so like that type of example where uh, 
you might accidentally build a security feature like locking when all you really needed was some more presence and like a visibility in the product where people are. Hmm. And that is just a slight turn on the problem space, but so impactful in how you think about which way should you go? Well, do we a whole RBAC permission situation or I just want to see a cursor and then if somebody clicks something, it lights up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, hmm. so just try it on and being willing to be devil's advocate, being willing to reframe it. And so what you can start to do is uh, when you are trying on the problem in these different ways and, and reframing the problem in different ways, usually everybody has some idea about what the solution is and what they want to actually build, mm -hmm. how they want to solve the problem. And reframing it lets you sort of gut check, okay, like how does that solution feel now with this new framing? How does this solution feel now with this new framing? And so everybody can sort of be part of that experience to not only find more alignment about what the problem is, better understand some of that context that they maybe lacked in terms of, well, we really wanted to do, you know, we, we actually, it's not about lock, but we know we want this in the future. Mm. And so... Yeah, the, the two birds with one stone is it solves a short-term problem and gives us some bit of platform foundation to build up to something else unrelated. You know, like that's the perfect type of thing that doesn't always show up in the conversation when it comes to is, you know, what's the feature that we need or what's the user problem that we're trying to understand. And so as much of, you know, the right amount of that context that you can bring in, I think is incredibly helpful. And do you find that, again, is this sort of you, at least initially leading by example and making sure that you're asking the questions, because I guess my question is, how do you how do you sort of flip that and ensure that your team is, you know, from an engineering perspective, when you have product and you have design, sometimes what will happen is stuff just gets thrown over the fence and engineers are just expected to build it, right? No questions asked, which is never a way to do things by any means. Yeah. But sometimes it happens, right? In some scenarios, it happens more often than it should. How do you sort of ensure that your engineers would be like, okay, hold on, like, let's let me ask the right questions. Let me ask more questions. Let me ask different questions. How do you make sure that they're sort of thinking about this so that they can do that? Yeah, I. that's a good question. I think a lot of it is is sort of, it is modeling. It is leading by, you know, example, asking questions in that room, asking them of them. I don't know that I've, I've, I've thought explicitly about how to coach them to do this more because to some degree, not everybody's interested in this. And I think this is, yeah. It's this is an area where I would it's not just an engineering problem and it's not yeah. just engineers yeah. that are responsible for asking these questions. Not just me. Absolutely. Like I'm just one person. Why I'm passionate about it is because I have built lots of right solutions for wrong problems and it doesn't <laughs> feel good. You know? The thing mm -hmm. looks amazing, but it's not actually what anybody wanted. And it was the slight reframe that we'd missed or the slight conversation here. So both at System Initiative and all of my companies, all, all the companies that I've worked at, one thing I've always tried to do is start together as much as we can. Mm. So, you know, any handoff, whether it's a handoff of, you know, a product requirements document or a PR or, you know, whatever, whenever I see the, the like I hear the word handoff, <laughs> my anxiety starts to spike and I'm like, okay, I don't want that. I don't want a handoff yeah. because we're not an assembly line. Yeah. We're not an assembly line. Uh, there can be a strategic time to run that type of way, but that is not the de facto, that is not the default. We work together, we start together. And, and so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just the, the question for me is, do you have the right framework? And so if I think about it from like a company culture perspective or an engineering and product culture perspective, 
what types of meetings are you facilitating? What types of conversations is your process facilitating? And if this is not a conversation that your process is facilitating, the message you're sending is it's not important. And it needs to be important. Mm -hmm. And that is something that you can put some structure around where you can create the environment to try to maximize the chance that that conversation happens in the right way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, and avoid as much as we can the situations where, well, here's the... Here's your PRD. Tell me, like, how long will it take you and tell me when it's done? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just kind of reframing how we think about the work that we do and the conversations that we're having to ensure that we're asking those kinds of questions and have mm -hmm. the space to ask those kind of questions. And sometimes those are painful because usually there's yeah. one person in the room that that's like their baby. It's their idea. It's their, like, they're very passionate about this thing. And it could be very hard to check your biases. It could be very hard to sort of like, okay, let's assume I'm wrong. Let's assume that this isn't the right framing. And let's assume that the solution we're planning on going with is the wrong one. Why is it wrong? You know? Mm -hmm. And so you try to like have these types of mechanisms to like decrease, uh, decrease the ego to some degree, decrease the bias. And, and in this, in those conversations, that ego and that bias, I don't think those are bad things. Like, the ego in that, like the ego in that room around, look, I'm just, I think I'm right. This is the problem and this is the solution. Like often that, that's what can make or break your product decision leaders in terms of like their instincts. Cause what mm. they're saying is like, look, my instincts say this is where we should go. And you're telling me to ignore my instincts and it doesn't feel good, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so those conversations can be hard, but as much as you can have ways to, ways to normalize the conversation, ways to say, look, we're, we're role-playing. Like the exercise we're doing is literally assume we're wrong. We're all going to assume we're wrong. And mm. now let's talk about how we could be wrong, you know, and finding those ways to get people to sort of disconnect from their instincts a bit and approach it from another way is hard, but I think is, is, can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Wonderful. So I think kind of a part of this, right. And thinking through how we ask questions and when we actually do execute on these things, when we actually do put products out, there's this idea of feedback loop and or metrics and quantitative and qualitative feedback and how can we kind of learn and grow as a team, but also, you know, through our products that we put out. Can you, can you kind of just speak a little bit to how you have measured and or collected feedback both in small orgs, which is very different, right, than uh, the, sort of the org that you're in now, which is a small org, versus a large organization, which is your previous org, I think, where you managed about 200, 200 engineers. Can you kind of talk about the difference and sort of maybe how you can approach it depending on the org size? Yeah. I So when, you're, when the team is small, one of the benefits of small teams is that you're usually very close to it. And so you, the subjective, the how things feel, the, you know, are we having an impact in the market? What are our users saying? What are our customers saying? Things that at larger organizations, you can feel much more disconnected to that. Like I would call that, you know, if, if, if what we're doing is playing a basketball game, I think the score is closer to the impact you're having in the market or the impact you're having in the business. And whether you mm. want to measure that by revenue or you measure that by, you know, user acquisition or user growth or retention or sort of any of those metrics, like I think that's the score. Now- Sort of your outcome. That's sort of your outcome, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the team level, the team is not independently responsible or accountable for that score, right? Like my engineers don't have a quota. Mm. They don't, they're not responsible for building the funnel and making sure that people are showing up 
to come to our yard to try the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to the team then, you have to really understand sort of what role they play in that score and are there either objective or subjective things that you can start to extract from to be able to get an understanding for like, well, how did you play this week? You know, how did, like, how did this game go? Mm. You know, at a larger organization, and for me in particular, I was much farther removed from the teams, right? I was, so I was an AVP and there were managers, senior managers and directors in between. So I was four levels up from the individual contributor. And at that level, the metrics become less about the numbers and more about the trends. And so how are, mm. how are things evolving over time, right? So um, if you think about like features delivered is one that I like both hate and love because mm. on one hand, it is a pretty good proxy metric for, it's like, if you have no output, none, then you're probably not going to have an outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that the number of things that you're outputting is what you're going to use to forecast what the outcomes are going to be. But there is a relationship because we know that if the end, the number is zero, then the outcome is not going to be good, right? <laughs> and, and, and so it becomes a bit of like, okay, so it's not a count, but what is it? And so whether it's the change over time and, you know, and, and so at, at when I'm that far removed, what I'm looking for is trends and trends of, like I said, features delivered or regressions found or, you know, deployments. It's like, how many times are we just shipping? Because if that number starts to dip, you know, it's, it doesn't matter necessarily if the number goes from 10 to five or a hundred to 50. I, I don't know. Like I can't even put thought behind what that could mean in isolation of sort of everything else. Mm. And so it becomes just much more of a trend analysis for me. And guess what? With trends, like there are outliers <laughs> and the outliers can usually have, it's like, oh, velocity here on this team skyrocketed. Yeah. They've only been fixing small bugs. Mm. Every bug mm. is one point yeah. and they knocked 50 of them out. <laughs> but when you're working on a really hard, complicated piece of functionality where the number of unknowns unknowns far outweigh the number of where places where you know exactly where to go to fix the thing. It's like, yeah, of course your velocity is going to drop hmm. because that's expected and that's how it goes. So, so, you know, knowing what trends you're looking for and being able to, and being able to like not forget that like, I'm like, I'm an engineer. I was there, <laughs> you know, somebody's measuring me by something that I feel like I don't have control over. That doesn't feel good, hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that it has to not be so, you know, uh, it's not the silver bullet I think that people want it to be and we desperately want it to be because there's security in confidence in measurement. Like, Unfortunately, I think our domain is not a factory the way that we wish it would be where counting widgets coming off the line is an indicator of future revenue or future sale, right. you know? Right. It's much more knowledge work and not precisely not that factory mentality. Yeah. Precisely. You, and you've, you've talked about uh, thinking about metrics and or trends as like signals, right? So, so that we're not just like what you said, like, we're not saying, oh my gosh, this team last week deployed a hundred new features and this week deployed 50. Uh, I'd like to be on a team that, that deployed that many features a week, but, um, they're not doing well, right? Like that's, that's, that's taking it for what it is. That's a very binary look at and very binary approach. What you're suggesting is, okay, there's something here. How do you kind of dig in further? Yeah, I think 
the reason the reason for me that they're signals is that they what I'm trying to understand is what are the questions I need to ask. Mm. And looking at numbers and looking at the trends and looking at them as signals can help me to better understand like what questions I can ask and what what actually do I need to be learning here because there there certainly can be point in time you know whether it's situational or you know hey we got wrecked because of this you know somebody was sick and yeah. they usually aren't <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, or two people were sick and usually it's only one at a time you know i mean mm. there there can just be so many be so many different situational things i think i think too it's incredibly you know if you ask the team hey i noticed this number did this thing they'll have an opinion about it. <laughs> like they'll probably be like, oh yeah, well, you know, this was just way harder than I thought. It was just harder. I thought it would take longer or, you know, and it, and if you think about some of the impact of those, like they're not mistakes. They're just, it's a thing that we had to learn. Like mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And when you learn it, it has to be okay that we learn it. And I think one example of this, you know, we use estimates in like, how long will something take or how much work is this gonna be? When will it be done? whether you're using t-shirt sizes or story points or whatever, the reason, part of the reason for that is because we want to know if it's worth it. It's like before we build a feature, before we re-architect some part of the system, is the performance bump worth it? Is what, mm -hmm. you know, is the cost reduction worth it or whatever? And it has to be worth it in terms of what? And it's like, well, worth it in terms of time and money and people and resources and opportunity cost and whatever. Right. And so like very quickly, like the things that we're learning often are the things that, uh, feed into have been previously like an input to some decision. Mm. And the more that you can, you know, the more that you can talk about how you're learning these lessons and what it means and how it then shows up, like metrics, I think give you an opportunity to both talk about the reality. Like you can tell a story about how something happened and then you can look at the numbers and then you can say, well, the story was this, do the numbers make sense or not make sense? Mm. <laughs> and it, it, it's not one or the other. They have to be working in tandem all of the time. And yeah, I don't know that I completely answered your question, but no, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, <clears throat> a couple of things that I'm hearing from that is sort of don't make assumptions based on the trends or signals. Just Talk to people. Talk to your Just team. Talk to people. Investigate. Ask more questions. Uh, a metaphor that that you've used before, and kind of I think what what pertains to this conversation is, and going back to basketball, right, <clears throat> is you use the the film, the game film, as sort of your context, your sort of qualitative to how are how's everybody feeling? What's the energy level? Right, something that you can't measure from a sort of a metrics perspective. And then you have the game stats: how many steals. Did we have, how many points did we score? What was the overall, you know, did we win as sort of your metrics, right? And that's the story that, that, that you're sort of talking about. Precisely, precisely. Yep, yep. Excellent. So now you're at System Initiative and y'all are building a platform that helps DevOps teams move fast. Uh, it's an open source intelligent automation platform that allows DevOps to build detailed interactive simulations of their infrastructure and use them to update their production environments. Walk us through this. What What is this? What are you doing? Yeah, you know, uh, System Initiative is the result of a number of years of iteration. And it's going back to a conversation we had before. 
part of it's a reframing of the problem, mm. <laughs> you know? And so Coming when you circle. can reframe, <laughs> mm-hmm. so when you can reframe the problem, sometimes what you end up with is something like system initiative. So system initiative is exactly that. It's a DevOps power tool. It's an incredibly novel approach to a space that has had a ton of iteration and we have come incredibly far. So, you know, we've been talking, we have been talking a lot about sort of the second wave of DevOps, which is an acknowledgement that our aspirations, what we wanted to accomplish with DevOps, we still want that, you know? Mm. Uh, So, and that's, that's the sort of the outcome, the outcomes that we had set up for, for DevOps, we still want those. And what the second wave means is what happens if you reframe the problems that are standing between us and those outcomes and solve them in a different way. So system initiative, uh, it's a multiplayer, multimodal power tool that allows teams to provision, manage, uh, provision and manage their infrastructure over time in the product. So what we do is we enable you to build a model, sort of a digital twin of your environment of whether it's dev staging production or sort of whatever, whatever your infrastructure is, you build a digital twin of it in the product. With that digital twin, we're able to capture relationships between configuration information. And so for example, you know, think about how many times you need to thread a specific port number through Mm. all of the configuration (laughs) decisions you have to make, right? And so if you think about what's required, you have to know as a, a, whether it's a DevOps engineer or cloud engineer or SRE, I don't, insert your title here. As an engineer, you need to know not only what the right thing is to do, but how to do it. And Mm. that how to do it, there are just so many paper cuts. There are so many places for mistakes that the, the actual job of doing this work is not fun. And it can be, it can be fun. You know, the same reason that, uh, it's like the reason that I'm in, that I love building software is because it's fun. Mm-hmm. And all of these, all these paper cuts are reasons that make it not fun, right? So, you know, by capturing relationships between the configuration elements in your system, what that means is you can go from, I know what the right thing is to do and I know how to do it very quickly because making one change mm-hmm. one where in the system using these relationships we can propagate the changes sort of throughout the rest of your model throughout the rest of your infrastructure hmm. all of this running as a digital twin means that it is running as a simulation so you can see what happens when i change this value here what happens downstream um, before even interacting with your environment at all and so if you think about that from a feedback loop perspective what you thought mm-hmm. was the right decision maybe isn't for something that wasn't clearly apparent to you at that time, you know, like it's like who has been burned by a cert expiring. Oh my gosh. We were just been going through that stuff. Actually. It's like, <laughs> it's like, the, it's a, it's a, it's such an, <laughs> it's such an easy one, but it's like the perfect example of the burden of remembering the burden of having to have information ready at hand. Like it's just tasking or taxing. And so if, if what you can do is simulate the impact of your changes, to bring in the data that you need to be able to run tests on it, whether it's a test for policy, whether it's a test for correctness, you know, Mm. is uh, one that's very top of mind for our team lately. How are our CIDR block ranges going? (laughs) It's like, how many times, how easy is it to screw that up? Like, it's so easy. Uh, And it doesn't have to be easy, you know? And part of it is we just lack the platform. We lack the framework with which we're able to capture both 
you know, this is the test that I want to run. This is the information I want to check for. And here's all of the information I need to be able to actually mm. run it. It brings it all in one place in a simulation, giving you that feedback as you're making changes live. Uh, the second thing I'll say about, about system initiative is the multiplayer. So, you know, it's a little bit like, what did Adam say the, the other week? It's a bit like Figma and... Uh, what fig it's a bit like figma and miro had a devops uh. baby <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of what system initiative is you know so you're in there you're modeling you're making you know you're provisioning new infrastructure or you're rotating certs or you're upgrading your database version or mm. whatever and you're in the product you can see other people in the product you get feedback on what they're doing in the product and so it gives us a place to actually come together to do this work where today the only option we have is to trade text files mm. and trade PRs around. Like that's how we collaborate today. And it doesn't work. Look, we're never going to get to that outcome we want if we only think of this as an automation problem. Like it's not just an automation problem. It's a collaboration problem and it's a feedback problem. Mm. You know, automation, I think we've solved automation for DevOps. I don't, maybe that's a, a, an aggressive thing to say, but I think that we've solved it. Like I don't know that there's a single manual thing that we, somebody somewhere, hasn't found a way to automate a previously manual task. Mm. I think we've solved it. The problem now is how do you interact with that automation and how do you bring people together to live with that automation? And System Initiative brings brings all of that together in one place where people can do the work. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I, I've seen I've seen some videos, seen some demos. The UI looks awesome. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're incredibly proud of it. Excellent. Well, we are we are at time. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? Any any other piece of nuggets or advice or strategies or anything you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I you know I would say it's very easy. You know whether whether you frame this as a DevOps. You know originally the DevOps problem I thought was an agile problem. Mm -hmm. You know I was I I came at it from that way. Um, I think it's important to not let sort of how the industry has marketed solutions to these problems to lose sight of the outcomes that we wanted in the first place. So whether the outcomes that we wanted were, you know, uh, a cross-functional team working together towards a single goal, deploying tens, hundreds, thousands of changes per day, like that is an outcome that we want. Whether you're calling it platform engineering, whether you're calling it DevOps, whether you're calling it agile, don't lose sight of the outcomes um, because we might miss we might miss the opportunity to iterate. We might miss the opportunity to solve a problem if we're burned out by the current solutions. So don't lose sight of where we want to go. We got to keep trying. There's so much more to do. There's so much more to build together. Uh, if the AI movement as of late have taught us anything, the internet isn't going anywhere. Uh, infrastructure, cloud infrastructure is not going anywhere. Um, and so keep at it. Keep trying to achieve that outcome that you wanted. Incredible. Where can people find you on the web and follow everything that you're doing? Yeah, I, I do have a sort of a Twitter and a bunch of other things, but they're so unused. I would say find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, if you'd like, if you're interested in anything you heard here or want to just, just generally join the discussion about second wave DevOps, System Initiative has a Discord. You know, I'm, Nigel, I'm happy to send you a Perfect. link to. I'd love for anybody to pop into there and, and join the conversation as well. And you can find me there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Brett, thank you so much for, for joining me today to talk about your journey, talk about how you build high-performing teams, feedback loops, metrics, using basketball as a metaphor. I mean, I always love bringing out, out you know, outside things to describe the work we do. It makes it more fun and a little bit more tangible, I think. 
And then also sort of giving us the download about system initiative and these open source automation platform that you all built. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so fun, Nigel. It was a ton of fun. I'll do it again. Thank you for listening to Building with People for People. For more information and notes about this and our other episodes, please visit podcast.unfilteredbuild.com. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving a review as it helps new listeners find our content. If you're building something interesting and would like to be a guest on this show, please send me an email at jointhepodcast at unfilteredbuild.com. Until next time, go build with people.